Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb. I'm Terrell. And today, we're Dangerously Likely to just talk. Well, if you haven't noticed, there is quite a bit going on, whether it be the president talking about climate change right now, Build Back Better plan finally seeming like it might make it across the finish line, OJK, because Joe Manchin still takes a breath of air. Uh, um, (laughs) There's just a lot. So instead of just going above the fold, why don't we stay there, Caleb? You know what? I agree. Let's talk about the headlines and let's just go through what's been happening this past week. Not to... uh... I mean, obviously, the first thing that we probably won't talk about because hopefully we will know results by the time that this episode comes out. But the day we're recording is a lot of different elections um, in this off-year election season. And uh, I think one that everyone that probably listens that is politically inclined is probably watching the Virginia um, governor race. Mm. So we'll see what happens there. But uh, who do you want to win that? (laughs) Uh, um, Terrell hasn't been paying attention. Oh, I have been. I just don't think. What's the word I'm looking for? Let me ask you a question <laughs> that probably answers this. So every time that there's an election, especially in an off year, the news media always says this is going to be the predictor of how the midterms or the general election is going to no. go. It's an off. It's a very off year election. Virginia's blue. No one. Yeah. No. Also, I always appreciate when you're like the news media. I'm like, it's not technically us because we do have a podcast that talks about the news. Yeah. But I like to talk about what the narrative is. And then I don't know. We're not necessarily one that always follows that narrative. It's funny you mentioned that um, the top story for the New York Times right now is polls close in a Virginia race expected to signal the nation's mood. Um, yeah, no, I don't. I so don't agree with that. Do you think it will that. signal the nation's mood, or do you think the media will just narrative that? I think we need us? to stop pretending like we're all one country. I think Virginia has issues that matters to it, specifically the fact that it has some really strong um, social justice and racial equity issues that have mm-hmm. plagued it for the last umpteenth years. But let us not forget what two years ago. Sorry, I keep forgetting 2020 existed. So my brain's like, where does it fit into it? Um, (laughs) Two years ago, Virginia was trying to understand how to remove Confederate monuments from its capital because it was the home of the Confederacy. Robert E. Lee was from Virginia. Um, So those issues are not the same issues that you're feeling in a blue Colorado or blue Washington or blue Oregon, or even in the Rust Belt, I would argue. In the Rust Belt, you're still having conversations about COVID. So to conflate those issues, I personally feel aren't fair to the um, constituents in Virginia and are just trying to set up this doom and gloom message if the Democrats were to lose that they have no hope come 2022. Why are they even trying? Because that's the other message that needs to be talked about. Everyone's saying that Democrats are definitely going to lose the Senate. The House is on shaky ground. So say they win Virginia in a handed way or even by a narrow margin. The Republicans? Are you, no, the, the Democrats. Oh. 
are you telling me now that the Democrats are now destined to keep the Senate and the House just because of Virginia? No. So I don't understand why we let this narrative set. It it feels like the narrative is less about, oh, Democrats held on more than like if Republicans win, like what what does that mean for momentum for the party? And I feel like that's kind of where this will lead. And it's always built up to like, it always feels like it's built up even when Democrats are the underdog that Democrats are going to lose. And what does this mean for them? Democrats are always the underdog. I would just like to point that out. They are. Even when they're in power, they're the underdog. I am a Detroit Lions fan. I grew up with the Pistons. I only choose underdogs (laughs) who disappoint me. And I am a proud Democrat. So what does that tell you? (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. But with 42% reporting, granted, it's not the biggest cities. Starting to look a little shaky. So who's to say? Wow. Okay, well... I'm sure the polls will not be uh, completely done by the time that we are done recording this. So Um, it'll be interesting to listen to this two days later. So kind of like some, some interesting news is like the cop 26, which is the, uh, the climate change um, conference or the conference of parties um, is kind of what that stands for. And Glasgow is going on right now. A ton of stuff is happening. Um, Here's some updates. So first, India, which is one of the world's largest consumers of coal, announced that it would be carbon neutral by 2070, which is a pretty big deal for for a country the size of India, 1.4 billion people. Um, They had recently actually not updated their Paris Climate Accord status. So this was actually a pretty good start to the conference and one that I think took a lot of people by surprise. More than 100 countries have pledged to end deforestation, which is awesome. Many more countries are discussing the seriousness of methane gas, and 105 countries have signed the Methane Pledge, which is a commitment to reducing methane emissions by 30% by 2030. So that's really a big deal, and that feels arguably might have been the biggest focus of this conference is mm-hmm. the realization of like methane as a greenhouse gas is like pretty nasty. But there's a couple like differences between methane and carbon dioxide. So methane like is the power of like many millions of tons of carbon dioxide, but like in much less of it in the air. But here's the thing is it does dissipate after like a couple decades versus a couple hundred years like carbon dioxide does. Um, But it's just a much more potent like greenhouse gas. So if we can stop methane like leaks or just methane emissions at like almost fully now, um, then we will stop our... uh, our projections automatically go down like over one degree hmm. of warming over the next um, like 50 to a hundred years, which is actually a really significant amount. Yeah. Um, so that's been kind of the big feels like the realization and the big focus of this um, climate conference around the world. And it's good to see that a lot of countries are committing to at least reducing them for the next um, eight or so years uh, uh, by 30%. Although it needs to be more, that's it's a decent starting point. Um, another update is that there's going to be $100 billion a year in climate aid um, for developing nations. Um, this hasn't actually been confirmed yet, but it, it, the U.S. and a lot of others are saying it's within reach. And then lastly, Biden is scolding Russia and China because they decided not to go to the conference. Um, I mean, obviously, Terrell, there's so much that still needs to be done. Um, like the methane gas stuff is great, but Russia, who didn't even show up, is the biggest emitter of methane gas in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and a big reason of that is actually because of Europe. Um, Russia is like almost the sole supplier of natural gas to all of Europe. 
and their technology is old. And this is interesting is because they can, if they update their tech, like they can stop leaks and stuff and it's technically fine and it'll be clean energy. Yeah. Um, and, and every time they build something new, they do update it, but they just haven't updated their old infrastructure. And that would be kind of at this point, a really big effort with lots of money and whatnot. So they just haven't. Um, but if we could, you know, get them to, or even, I don't know, supply money or something, then that would be a good way to, to kind of stop that. Um, but also some other things that like need to be done, like despite a bunch of countries pledging and putting money to stop deforestation, the amount spent on fossil fuels still far outweighs what the conference has promised, uh, which is pretty true everywhere, especially in the private sector or public sector. There's a lot of honestly both <laughs> like it, like we need to stop deforestation. The problem is, is like developed countries like the U S and a lot of countries in Europe, like, are kind of the ones that spurred on the deforestation. And now mm -hmm. that they're developed, it's like these developing countries are like, wait a second, like we still need to be able to build stuff to develop. And now that the richer countries are like, no, <laughs> like we need to figure out a plan of how we're going to like help developing countries mm -hmm. uh, with more sustainable, like building practices and whatnot, uh, that doesn't lead to direct deforestation. Overall, though, I do think the conference has been pretty productive, um, and there's been some progress made. Obviously, there needs to be a lot more um, that needs to be done. But to me, the biggest win out there is probably the the meth the methane gas stuff that's going on here. Uh, I kind of wanted to ask you what your opinion on on all of this was. Um, I know that was a lot, but what do you think is going on right now? Are you are you slightly optimistic? Are you upset? I'm still in the mood I was when I walked in of like, I just, I'm over all of the things. Um, <laughs> One of those days. I'm not. I just, I think we're moving through Americans specifically are moving through all the stages of grief. And some of us have gotten to the anger stage faster than others. Um, <laughs> uh, like, yes. Awesome. Glad. I, I think this is, an American centric opinion specific to climate change of, Oh, well look, people still care and we're still talking about this and da, 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 da. But it was the U S that left the parent Paris climate accord, not the rest of the, the world. Yeah. The rest of the world cares about this and understands. Um, it's just nice. I think to see our president standing up in that space and recognizing the importance of this, um, and then seeing your same dynamics of, well, Russia isn't doing their fair part, and we think that China's underrepresenting, blah, blah, blah. Um, so all in all, interested and intrigued, but not, no no firm opinion. Like, I don't expect anything differently. I, I think the European nations see, have seen the impacts of climate change a little bit more um, quickly and in, in, in their their present mind Germany having some of the worst floods on record um, Italy burned there's just there's all these things of of course we're here like it makes sense I don't know how to better communicate that of of course <laughs> yeah I don't know like climate's one of those things where like I think we should I think 
it's one of those things where like, I don't know if we should ever be satisfied um, with what we're doing, but it is a good thing that we are making some progress. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I'm just kind of at the point where like this climate conference feels a little bit more urgent, even though we're not getting every single thing that needs to happen. It feels a little bit more urgent uh, than it did even like at the Paris climate accords. And you know, I if that's a trend that continues, I think that's a that's a big deal, and I I hope we continue to get more uh, actions and results uh, in the future as well. So, I don't know. I feel I'm feeling okay with it right now. You know, feeling a, a little optimistic that it'll get better, but I don't know. It's hard to know <laughs> if we're really going to be doing enough or not. So, yeah, obviously, I'd like to see more, but and there's this nice feeling too under the current administration. You have. From a financial lens, this coordination to finally set a floor on um, corporate tax rates. You have this coordination here in the climate arena. You're starting to see some further coordination um, around defense and recognizing strategic partners. So I do think there's an appreciation there that the globalized world is finding space and finding capacity to come together and step in where they need to. Um, And it's hopeful. It's just one of those, like I said, I really think that our country as a whole is going through all the stages of grief and I'm just in the angry one. So (laughs) that's fair. Kind of keeping to the world news. Um, Elon Musk made headlines this week after I forgot about this. How could you forget? This is like one of the biggest stories of its time. Um, (laughs) Really? I think so. I, (laughs) I think I'm intrigued because we keep saying billionaires need to put their money where their mouth is. And I guess Elon's trying to call our bluff. Um, I'm okay with it. For those of you who don't know, Elon said he is willing to spend $6 billion to fight world hunger. Um, But there is, of course, one condition. After this um, deal with Hertz and the company now being a part of the Trillion Dollar Club, um, Elon made, I want to say, $366 billion off of that. And after a report from the European or the United Nations saying that um, a $6 billion donation from one of the world's wealthiest people could help stop world hunger. Elon reached out through a tweet, if I remember correctly, and essentially said, nice. give me a plan and I'll give you the $6 billion. I feel comfortable selling this amount um, of my share. According to these reports, it could help upwards to 42 million people. Um, wow. And just have a really positive impact. But you touched on this, Caleb. What what are your opinions? How do you feel about the fact that Elon Musk is really is willing to say, here's six billion dollars because he can just pull it that easily, Um, but still putting the onus on the United Nations to kind of come up with a plan for how they want to spend that line item by line item. I actually think it makes sense. Look, like. You kind of said he's look. Maybe he's looking to call our bluff. Good. I hope he does. I don't know. I think a lot of people still hate the idea that of just billionaires in general. So mm-hmm. they complain that 
oh, they're going to space. Why don't they put their money towards like, I don't know, saving their earth or helping people. And then they do that and they're still mad at them because they have money and can just do it. Yeah. And like, if you're just never going to be like happy with people who have a shitload of money, that's fine. You don't have to be. But um, I, 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 I'm happy that he's trying to call our bluff if that's really the case, because obviously, yeah, $6 billion is a, that's a nice chunk of change and going to something good like this is a big deal. Um, I think it's actually kind of interesting that he said he, he kind of called the UN to like make a plan. Mm -hmm. And I think that actually makes sense because the UN is in a position where it should know how to make a plan for this. And Musk going out and instead of doing something by himself, which I think is what a lot of super wealthy people do, he actually is going through like, I don't even know if I want to say proper, but like the proper channel to like be able to distribute where this aid goes. Mm -hmm. Um, So I actually, you know, I'm, I'm cool with it. Good for him. I, that's great. (laughs) I don't know. I don't, I don't have, I don't really have any qualms or whatnot. He's one of the few billionaires where it seems like some of the stuff that he's trying to do is, um, I would like to say, helping the world versus hurting it, plus uh, advancing humanity in some way. Like, yeah, we don't like billionaires going to space. Elon Musk hasn't been to space, I don't believe. But he, he does. He didn't go on the first trip I don't... with. I thought he went with all, with Did he? like Bezos and all the rest of them. Oh, I don't know if he went with Bezos. I, I thought don't know he about that did because he, why would he, why would he do that when he just goes in SpaceX? I mean that was SpaceX is what Bezos went up in. I thought Bezos went up in his Blue Origin rocket that looked like a literal penis. That was a SpaceX vehicle, I thought. No, Blue Origin is its own company. Hmm. But like hmm. I, I like. I'm a big advocate for space travel, actually. So, like, this. I'm super okay. And SpaceX actually works with NASA to do stuff. And yes. I, I think that's great. Um, There's actually a fun story on that. Um, I learned from TikTok that the toilets on the current SpaceX um, shuttle aren't working. So, when the astronauts return, they all have to wear diapers. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I um. So, I, I don't know. Like, I don't have, like, this huge unfavorable view of Musk. And that might be an unpopular opinion, but like I actually kind of respect Tesla just because electric cars, I think, are the future and whatnot. But I mean, honestly, if he's trying to do some good here, I'm all for it. And I think it makes sense to go through the UN for this to be able to really hit the the right areas and how this aid is distributed. And I don't disagree with you on that front either. I don't. Jeff Bezos, I can hate because he's just flaunting his money and is very much. Oh, my God. Bezos is just not a good. He's not yes. good at messaging or people person. It's not even that. He it's, he's just not a good person. Um, That's true. And that that is why I don't like Jeff Bezos. It's not because of its money. It's because of who he is. Elon Musk. He has its his moments where I can dislike him, but I yeah. can't be mad at um, your Warren Buffetts and your um, Bill Gates who found a system that allowed for them to cultivate and have this much money. Right. I can't be mad at them that they found that option. I can be mad at the system, which I very much am for allowing capitalism to run unfeathered. But on that, on that point, um, it's nice to see a younger individual in that club saying, you know what? Fine. Here's 
six billion dollars. I'm not going to give six billion dollars to a campaign. I'm not going to funnel it through politics in the space. I'm really going to take an effort to um, do some good. Yeah. Okay, Terrell, I wanted to get some of your kind of feedback on what's going been going on with the Supreme Court this week. So do you really want that? I do. Kind of in short, the Supreme Court basically decided it would hear some arguments um, kind of about the Texas abortion bill. Remember that? It's kind of like the uh, bounty hunting bill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where um, is it six weeks? I believe it's like if you get an abortion after six weeks of pregnancy, yep. then you can basically be turned in for a $10,000 reward. In, but if you do it in Texas specifically, mm-hmm. um, even Uber drivers can be prosecuted for helping somebody yep. get an abortion. But anyways, so if you all recall, uh, the Supreme Court could have stepped in and stopped it, but they didn't. And that was mostly because the nature of the law is super weird. So they let it keep going. Um, and now... A few months later, they decided to hear some arguments about it um, just in terms of if it's constitutional or not, if mm-hmm. that's my understanding. And they didn't, they kind of let it keep going, but the interest, yeah. the arguments were interesting. And I kind of wanted to get your take on that. Yeah. What, what were those arguments kind of referring to and which, is it a good or bad, bad news? What is it? Um, yeah. So the Supreme Court is kind of a cluster right now. Um it is, it's important to separate this out, right? So yes, the Supreme Court is currently hearing two arguments um, related to the Texas abortion bill, not on the same breath, if you will, as the Mississippi abortion bill that directly seeks to overturn Roe v. Wade. The Texas abortion um, issue right now is one of does the federal government specifically the department of justice have the authority to sue a state for a bill of this nature because they felt they feel it violates the constitution like does the federal government really have jurisdiction to even bring a court of this status and junction up to the supreme court and then on the other end which is why I think people are harping on this language too much. There is a question of not so much of this law violates Roe v. Wade, but if it's written in a space that essentially forbids it from being reviewed by the Supreme Court, so gets it out of judicial review. And that's kind of been the talk of the town for the last couple of days where a lot of individuals are harping on Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh that asked some very strict questions about that very specific part in that loophole, Mm -hmm. uh, showing skepticism regarding this idea that this law essentially cannot be challenged. So for people who follow all of this, I think it is not that serious. Um, Especially if that's where this law lands also something important to recognize here, this is moving very, very quickly. So the Texas law was passed. There was an injunction filed. The Supreme court, as we talked about on this pod, um, denied the injunction, which wasn't a surprise. If you followed the Supreme court, they tend to let laws happen. Great example 
um, the travel ban that the Trump administration put out, and then some of its deportation authority that it used. ACLU filed injunctions the day those um, opinions and decisions came out from the administration. The Supreme Court let them go because they wanted to see the law happen or see the the actions of the administrative um, direction. So it wasn't surprising that they that they allowed this law to kind of happen for there to actually be some type of um, harm or injunction to be filed. Yeah. So those all all those things happen. The federal government specifically the Department of Justice stepped in and said, this actually completely disregards the Constitution. And for that reason, we are going to file with the Supreme Court for an immediate action. At the same time that occurred, um, some providers in Texas also filed saying that they had no course for reconciliation if something were to happen because of the nature of the law was written. And those two pieces have really piqued the interest. I think it's not surprising. Um, I actually messaged both Caleb and Torrance right after reading and hearing some of these pieces um, because I, I even say this about the Mississippi law. I think this present Supreme Court is going to struggle really hard to overturn Roe v. Wade, not because of uh, an ideological belief, but because of uh, a philosophy. Um, Justice Gorsuch is known for his originalism, his view that the Supreme Court cannot be a court that advocates for anything, um, but also his need to read it from a textualized standpoint, um, which means he reads a law as it's said. He doesn't care about external factors. Just what does the law say? Does it violate anything in the Constitution? Yes, no, move on. That is one great reason why um, he actually surprised a lot of people when he voted to uphold parts of the Affordable Care Act. So looking to this present group, because even the Mississippi law isn't filed from a religious freedom space, I think we're going to find out very quickly that it's not as doom and gloom as we thought. It's just the fact that, again, we like to live in fanfare. And I, I think these questions from both Amy Coney Barrett and Kavanaugh were questions to one show that they don't believe these type of laws should ever be written. They do believe that the Supreme Court should always have the ability for judicial review, which I firmly disagree with. Um, but also there's this belief that, and Kavanaugh worded it best, I do believe, um, allowing for a law of this magnitude can have reverse effects from what Texas had anticipated. Like if a... California were to decide to take this law word for word, and instead of, say, abortion, say gun ownership, they could circumvent and um, hinder the Second Amendment. That's an area of concern for Justice Kavanaugh. Um, for Amy Coney Barrett, it's just a view that uh, this is a loophole that shouldn't be allowed. So I'm rambling all to say it doesn't matter. I, I think they are asking these questions because they're they're justifiable questions. Again, if you follow, it's not a surprise. But also, I think they're they understand their colleagues on the bench, and um, they know what questions their colleagues want to know if they're going to make legal arguments with them later to get them on their side to either 
overturn Roe v. Wade in a couple of months or uphold it. Is it fair to say specifically with the Texas abortion law that came out that um, it seems that some of the Supreme Court justices are kind of mad, not necessarily at the law itself, but the way it was written uh, because it kind of takes power away from the court? Yes. Okay. That's all I need to know. (laughs) I mean, you also read this. Do you have opinions or things are you shocked as is apparently every cnn moderator (laughs) i um no it's really interesting because like every single news site and opinion piece is a different take on what the supreme court means when they do this or that and like i don't know so it's just hard for me to always like get a actually good understanding or grasp of what they actually are signaling because everyone just thinks they're signaling something different and i don't know I don't know, but everything you've said about it so far seems to be correct. So I guess I'll follow you for now. <laughs> Have you not learned? I'm always right. It's just how it works. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. And maybe I'm just in a perpetual state of exhaustion when it comes to issues like these, but I have like, I'm at a point where I just have no idea what they're going to do in a few months from now. And like, I could see them striking down. Um, I could, I could see them striking down the Texas abortion law, but I mean, and, and I know it doesn't affect me as directly, but like, I, I do find it a little bit hard to see them striking down Roe v. Wade entirely. Like it seemed like, I don't know much about the Supreme court, uh, but they don't usually go back on their own rulings from pre years past. Do they, is that like a normal thing that happens or is it on a more rare basis? I think it depends on the court. Okay. Do you think, I don't know. It just seems like Roe v. Wade has been here for 50, almost 50 years, right? Or more like that. Yeah. And it just seems like, I don't know. It would be very interesting if that actually happened. You know, I wish it was more of, I wish Roe v. Wade was kind of a, in, in uh, a Congress thing too. I wish it wasn't just Supreme court holding all the power here. And that is a great fear. I mean, that's how the Voting Rights Act got gutted. It wasn't because the Supreme Court inherently disagreed with um, the the opinions or the ways that maps were being drawn. They just thought that the formula that was being used was antiquated and it was time for Congress to step up and do something about it. Unfortunately for us, our legislator, the legislative branch is just god awful and that isn't going to fix anything yeah it is god awful do we want to transition and talk about the latest news on the um infrastructure bills oh i was just going to stay on congress for a little bit um because in a series of just slow leaks or slow drips but also like impactful messages um the rolling stone and both the both the Rolling Stone and the Washington Post um, have let out some information that further details the January 6th insurrection um, and has really started to perk up some ears that this was not only potentially, allegedly, an inside job, but just well-calculated and um, well-oiled to do exactly what it did and worse. Specifically looking at the Washington Post, it goes through 
um, not just the day itself, but the days leading up and the days after um, in some graphic detail. I know when this, I can still remember when this happened. Um, I was at home in Michigan, but I was texting Caleb and we kept having the same question. Why wasn't the national guard there? Um, oh yeah. Where, what was the delay finding out that the department of defense actually withheld the request to send in the national guard early. Interestingly from the Washington post, it was outlined that um, heads of the department actively chose not to send in the national guard as soon and change the request process for the national guard in reference to the specific event because there were fears that members of the National Guard could be corrupted or used against the state um, in an effort by Donald Trump to with or to hold on to power. Even beyond that, you get into this um, real clear understanding that the mob that descended upon the Capitol were taking their marching orders from the former president and were using um his words as an idea for how to move forward. I know we've talked about this a lot, Caleb, and I know that it is tiring. Um, but I do think there's something to say about the fact that we as a country had this, what I would argue is a very traumatic event happen. And then the same day went on to certify the election. The next day went on to try and pretend like it was business as usual and then walked in and got ready for uh, a president to be inaugurated, a former president to be impeached, all these things. But seeing some of these news reports come out, what are some of your initial reactions? Uh, I don't know. I I think that throughout this whole investigation, we're just going to find out more and more about what happened on that fateful day of January 6th. I... (sighs) I don't know what my reaction to this is. I mean, I mean, that literally, you're right. That was one of the most maybe historic events I've ever witnessed in a really bad way in our country. Like, I don't think that's really ever happened besides a foreign country getting into the White House, like yeah. in 18, 1812 or some shit. But like, I, I mean, like this is, it's just, what I really hate about the Republican Party specifically is that like they are just so absolutely like insane when it comes to things like it's their supporters and they know it. So mm-hmm. they just bend to them. But by doing that, they put their branding and messaging out and with their massive infrastructure of Fox News and everything else. Right. And AT&T freaking funds OAN and all this other right wing bullshit that's going on. Like, mm-hmm. like with that kind of infrastructure, they just like it just makes everything a little bit desensitizing yeah because when you have half the country thinking that oh it's not a big deal it like even if you think it's a big deal like it's now a political issue where like even people who would normally think that this is a big fucking deal are like whoa 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 it's i mean come on let's look at it through both sides here and i'm like this isn't a both sides issue i mean it was very clear that there were people involved in doing this and I've just dearly hope that this investigation, although it, it probably won't, it'll probably just see, be seen as divisive or whatnot, but I just kind of dearly hope that it kind of wakes some of us up to some of the terrible things that really did happen on that day. And honestly, like we're starting to learn some new things. Like 
we thought we knew a lot already. Holy crap. I mean, Congress, people in Congress were involved. Um, this National Guard shit. Allegedly. I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see this come out. And I do hope that the House holds a lot of these um, uh, people who are involved in Congress uh, accountable and people who defy subpoena- subpoenas uh, accountable. I hope. I hope for a lot of things, Terrell. I hope for a lot of things. Um, but yeah, I don't know. The situation just kind of always gives me a headache because it's like, a lot of people don't have not been able to grasp how like how big of a deal this was mm-hmm. because we're already all like desensitized to stuff like this. Too busy talking about infrastructure, but I mean, I I think it's really interesting you bring up um, that piece of well, we need to see this from both sides or we need to look through both lenses, right? Um, uh, there have been some really interesting political scientists to kind of come out and talk about the shift in the American mindset for the last couple of years, but specifically with this subtle shift that's happened of um, what we used to tolerate versus what we do now, even further than that. Um, I can't help but lean, lean into hazing a little bit um, from my formative years, but uh Dr. Gentry Mercury has a whole piece on this tolerance level and how um, how you might see shifts in, well, that's 100% wrong. That's 100% racist. But this this is in that gray area or, or we'll start tolerating that. And because you allow for that goalpost to move, you start to let some of those things that once were 100% wrong become eh, only 50%. Um, and as we we talk about this, I can't help but think about Charlottesville and the there are good people on both sides. And how many people came out and argued and said, no, there aren't yada, 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 even from the the um, Republican side saying, nope, the president made a messed up. That was completely inappropriate. Should not have said that. I don't see a clear distinction between what happened in Charlottesville and what happened on January 6th. However, the same argument is being used and more people are now allowed to say, nope, that's tolerable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we'll be right back. All right, Caleb, take us on a tangent. All right. To the audience today, I'm not going to be talking about some dumb succession stuff. You know, the great show on HBO Max. It's not that good. Well, Terrell, <laughs> a lot of the world would beg to differ. But anyways, um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not going to talk about Halloween or anything like that. I'm going to talk about a class assignment that I have that I Ooh. did today that kind of made me like it felt like it was something that I always I think I kind of like knew, but like didn't at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you ever feel that way, but I had this class assignment where we had to take a little, like one of those personality tests online, but it wasn't personality. It was about creativity. And I'm not really a big believer in personality tests or these kind of creative tests, because first of all, I think many people can just like kind of know what to choose, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but second of all, like, I'm just not convinced that you can put people in a box like that. Um, and, and maybe some of you disagree, but that's kind of how I feel about the whole thing. But anyways, it's a discussion board post. So on our uh, uh, learning 
system or whatever that we use for for my class, we have to post something on discussion board and then reply to posts from other students, mm-hmm. that kind of deal. And for this, we had not only had to take that creativity test, but we also had to watch TED Talk about creative confidence and um, kind of just write about our own experiences with creative confidence and uh, uh, some actionable ways for us to kind of uh, uh, like increase our creativity. Mm-hmm. So something that I just like, I never thought about, even though I don't know if I ever like bought the idea of this. I never really bought the idea that um, creativity is a, it's a natural thing per person. Um, it's not, by the way, it's, it's all of us are naturally creative in our own way, but yes. a lot of it is um, like a, a lot of the reason why like people like me, cause I do this, I say I'm not very creative, especially when I'm put on the spot to think of something. Um, I'm very creative after I've already followed kind of guidelines and instructions and I kind of know what I'm doing. That's when I get creative. You're a color inside the lines kind of kid. Yeah. But the, um, but the thing is like, like a lot of people have this fear, even if they don't know they have it, that like them being creative, like they're just fear of being judged by it. Mm -hmm. And some of them are like actual, like traumatic experiences in, in the past. Like when you're a kid and you, and you, did a piece of art and you felt good about it and for class. And then some kids come up and say that piece of art sucks. You're really bad at this. And just kind of just (laughs) tells you, tells you how bad you are at art or something like that. And the experiences like that can like really um, affect you for a a really long time. And I just like, I don't know. I just, uh, it was one of those things where I, I just didn't, really realize that like creative confidence is a real thing. And like the more that you have like that creativity side of you that everybody does have will actually come out. It's Mm -hmm. the thing that makes you, that makes us believe that some people are creative and some people aren't is more just about maybe how they grew up or just the fear of the judgment. And maybe they don't even know that, but like the more comfortable you are in a situation and uh, the more uh, uh, welcoming and inclusive the environment is to allow people to have that space to be creative. Um, I don't know. It's just not something I really thought about before. So yeah, that's my tangent today. I thought that was pretty interesting. Interesting. Take us on a tangent, Terrell. Mine's going to be on sports because <laughs> I'm it's about Michigan. I'm still salty about it. Okay, yeah. Well, first tell us what happened. Um, the refs gave Michigan state the game. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. else teams, Michigan, Michigan state. No, won. I can, salty. I can, I'm going to give you the full run rundown. Right. So <laughs> first quarter, um, Michigan comes with up with two interceptions to go up 10, zero against Michigan state. Second quarter, Michigan state gets two touchdowns. One, so 14 to 10 at this point. I'm still in the second quarter. Damn. Um, second quarter was kind of, it was a very pivotal point. So defensive strategy wise, Michigan really struggled in the first half. Um, Michigan has had this whole scheme where if the um, opponent is moving at any type of up tempo, they tend to get caught off guard. They, are doing substitutions. They get called for an illegal substitution. It's a free play. The reps called every illegal substitution 
throughout the entire first quarter. I think after the first quarter, Michigan's defense alone had eight to 10 flags just on, wow, just on illegal substitution. (laughs) That's a disadvantage for sure. (laughs) Yes. Um, But what notably came out of that quarter was at towards the end of the second quarter, um, Michigan state is pinned deep in their end zone. The defense is starting to get into its stride and has sacked the quarterback once now. Offensive lineman goes in, gets another sack, and the quarterback drops the ball. Ball bounces into the end zone, and um, Michigan recovers for what looks like a fumble recovery, which would result in a touchdown. Two refs on the field, the um, back judge and the line judge for the end zone, rule it a touchdown. Every touchdown is a reviewable play to make sure there was control, all of that jazz. And everyone was kind of expecting this to go through. The only question was, was his knee down beforehand? Every replay showed his knee was not down. Well, refs come back, overturn the fumble recovery, and say that his shin was down, which made him um, down by contact. Thus, the fumble was not able to be recovered. Mind you, two other refs in the moment on the field who can see said that it was very clear the ball came out before he was on the ground. Also important to recognize here for my Michigan State friends who want to come and say, the rule says anytime your body's down by contact, that counts as down. Never in football has your shin been considered reasonable for judging you as being down. It's normally your knee, your your forearm, your forearm or your shoulder. Yeah. Things that really impact your ability to throw a ball. I've seen quarterbacks on their shins, falling sideways, throw a ball to a receiver and catch it, and it's never been ruled as being down. Also, if you watch the replay, it's very questionable if his shin's down because it's like half of a shin, and this is why they don't go off of like, is your shin down? Because it's a very long region of your body versus seeing a knee hit the ground is very obvious. But whatever, sure, let's move on. Um, that results in Michigan kicking a field goal instead of giving their seven points. And we're here. We move into the second quarter and the, the, or the second half. And this is the part that really just angered me. Michigan's defense had hit its stride. That is a very important key to understand. They were frustrated that they didn't get that call, but they had hit their stride and they were no longer getting called for, and they were no longer getting called for, um, their illegal substitutions. They were, the defense finally figured it out. Yet, the defense still got the same number of flags in the second half as they did the first. Important to know. (laughs) So, Michigan has a 16. Salty. (laughs) Michigan has a 16 point lead going into the third quarter. Oh. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, there were some very questionable things that um, the coaching staff decided to do Uh, for one, they Harbaugh has this tendency to go into like, Oh, run, run pass because I don't want to lose this lead. And at least we're winning and doesn't understand that you can adapt in that space. So he did get out coach. And I will say that, Um, but we get into the fourth quarter and Michigan state ties it. Mind you, by this point, Michigan state has scored two two point conversions also Michigan's punter um 
somehow fumbled the ball when he was going to kick it and then went for a run and gets tackled. So they get a turnover and downs, which is a whole other issue. That's bad. Um, Sounds like disaster in Michigan, but for like one part of Michigan. Yeah. Uh, There's a, this isn't just about my anger about them losing because there is a part to that too. That is very frustrating. Okay. I do have a question about Michigan after you're done with this. Um, So we get into the fourth quarter and we, we're tied. Every Michigan fan is here filling that pit in their stomach of, are we really about to lose this game? Michigan state's kind of riding their high horse. And there's, these are the two calls that are the most questionable to me. And the reason that I'm still frustrated about this game, Michigan state's making a run. Um, Any score that they make pretty much seals the game for them. However, if they only kick a field goal and we somehow manage to get a touchdown, we don't go in overtime, obviously, all these things. Michigan State is third, and I want to say nine. Um, offensive line falls apart. The pocket's kind of shaky. Quarterback launches it, and refs call a pass interference. It's a very questionable pass interference. I would argue that the defense defensive player was also also an eligible receiver in that space because they had turned, looked for the ball, and went up to get it. So it should have been a fourth and long. However, flat came out. <laughs> first down. Pass interference, automatic first down from the spot of the foul. Michigan State goes on to score. Gives uh, the a touchdown? Yes. Damn. Um, which then gives Michigan back the ball. Michigan marches downfield and gets to a fourth and two or fourth and one. I don't remember correctly. Um, And in a very similar play. They launch it. Ball goes up because the quarterback recognizes there is a miscommunication on defense. Um, A corner and a safety are literally running into each other and the Michigan player is running a slant. An easy pass interference call by any standard because he beat the safety off the block and the corner's going to hit him as the ball gets there. Always traditionally called a pass interference because they interfere with the pass. Not a single call. Not reviewable. Turnover on downs gives Michigan State back the ball. And that essentially seals the game. So... My argument, my frustration, my anger, thank you guys for going through the whole game with me, is it was really bad officiating, and I'm really annoyed that Michigan State fans are here like, look at how awesome we are, we're undefeated, this and that, but can't own the fact that they did have some advantages in that game. But what makes me even more angry is that through all of 2020, I got to listen about black and brown people being rioters and being looters and just the scum of the world because they were marching for racial justice. Michigan State won that game. And before the final whistle was blown, there were couches lined up outside of the stadium on fire. There's a video of a um, Chevy Silverado flipped over with Michigan State fans standing on top of it, trailer attached, and they're breaking out the windshield just because they can. A guy walks up and pushes people out like, whose car is this? And they're like, I don't know. They're just doing it. Very mob behavior. Oh, the fans just started going the nuts fan- and, and they do this on fire? every time. It's as a tradition in, in East Lansing that couches get set on fire when what? Michigan wins this game. I didn't 
didn't know that. Oh, and yeah. everyone, everyone thinks that's okay. Everyone said, look at the Michigan State fans celebrating their win. <laughs> that's the part that really angers me. And I think that's the reason I'm so yeah. willing to fight against this whole like, oh, you guys won that fair and square. You were the better team. No, you weren't. Also, just for reference, Michigan doesn't set stuff on fire and break things when we win. We don't, that's not an appropriate response. But also, because East Lansing's really fucking racist. How about we talk about the privilege that you all have to flip over some person's truck and just do damage to it? And there's not a single cop there shooting rubber bullets into a crowd. There's no tear gas. There's no reports on the news saying that these individuals are Mm -hmm. the worst of the worst. They're rioters that what is the difference? They are white. So that's my frustration. But I do want to set you up with understanding my frustration from the game, too. Michigan going to be Ohio State? I don't know. I don't like to make decisions like that because I don't like jinxing my team. They are a good team this year. They despite are. the loss. I think it'll be a good game against Michigan State. I think the Michigan-Michigan State game was a great game. I I hope that we have better officials um, for the like Ohio State game. I got to say that like a lot of games, I haven't watched a ton of college football this year, but almost every game there's a really bad call. I just feel like it's just a bad year for refs. Yeah. Wow. Well, this one, this game was egregiously bad, though. Most people can agree that yeah. one, the fumble should have counted, which is also significant. And the reason I bring that brought that one up, whether it stood or not, had the fumble stayed, Michigan would have won the game, even if everything else played out the same. If we didn't get the field goal, we just yeah. got the fumble. Michigan State wouldn't have tied until the last four seconds or the the last few minutes of the fourth quarter. Oh yeah. If that. So it would have changed the whole outlook of the game because because of momentum alone, you know. Yeah. It would have put them up three scores versus only being up by two. So it's like mm-hmm. these are the things that I know every Michigan State fan is like, well you blew a 16 point lead. It's important to recognize that yeah they did and they can own that. And again I do think Harbaugh got out coached in the fourth quarter specifically. But I also believe that a team can beat its opponent. It can't beat its opponent and the refs at the same time. When your opponent is getting second chance opportunity after second chance opportunity, your defense is getting more and more tired because they got their three stops, but the refs gave them an extra set of downs. So now they have to do this all over again versus their defense. Oh, we're fresh. We, we haven't had to do this. Your offense starts feeling that and they start seeing it of, wow, that should have been a call because we just got the same call. I'm a great example. I'm a quarterback. I recognize this mix match. I'm going to take a shot at my receiver because you should give me the pass interference call. All right, Mr. Salty. It's crap. (laughs) And then for their fans to go out there and just do. mm, Yeah. Anyway. I mean, that. yeah, that is frustrating. Anger. <laughs> but anyways, uh, thanks for listening. I'm Caleb. I'm Terrell. And we're just likely to see you next week.